0: The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Chubigale, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present.
1: We're talking about one of the greatest theatre actors alive. You know, I felt like just a general tennis player. And then you're throwing me on the court with a Federer or even a Serena Williams or what have you. And all of a sudden it kicks in. Hold on a second. I've gone from training practice person to someone on the court with the highest level. And so, of course, there's a level of nerve, but a level of excitement.
0: Hey, I'm Courtney Ammenhauser, and this is Up Next—your ticket to the most exciting artists and performers coming through the Sydney Opera House doors. Some check, some One. Wow. Join me backstage as we chat to a spectacular lineup of artists who are making waves on one of the most iconic stages in the world. Together, we'll uncover who's up next and how this moment in time is transforming the next fifty years of arts and culture. In 1998, the celebrated British theatre actor Michael Sheen took on the role of young Mozart in Peter Schaffer's play Armadeus. The show is about a fictitious rivalry between real life composers Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Antonio Salieri. Now, more than 20 years later, Michael Sheen is returning to Armadeus, but this time in a different role. He's back as Salieri in an Australian run of the play opening in December. Stepping into His Old Shoes is one of Australia's most exciting up-and-coming theatre actors. Rahel Rahman will be taking on the character of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart opposite the incredible Lily Bollentinch in the role of Constance Mozart. You might recognise Rahel from SBS's The Principal or the 2021 film Here Out West, plus a number of roles for the Sydney Theatre Company. Lily has an impressive CV of US theatre parts, awards and has recently planted her feet as a director of Australian theatre, including the hit Bad Machine for Cameltown Arts Centre. I'm lucky enough to be joined by both of them today to chat about their surprising connections to their characters, their careers and who they think is up next in Australia.
1: Hey, my name is Rahel Rahman. I'm playing Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart.
2: I'm Lily Bollitens and I'm playing Constanza Mozart in the Sydney Opera House production of Amadeus. Welcome to both here on beautiful Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. One thing
0: we love doing on this show is asking people about the first time they've performed at the Opera House. And Lily, this show is not your first time on this
2: stage. It is not, Courtney. <laughs> um, I actually was first on this stage in high school. I was in the New South Wales State Drama Company and we were, as part of that, given the opportunity to compare events at the Opera House in the concert hall. Compare, C-O-M-P-E-R-E, not
0: C-O-M-P-A-R. <laughs> the hosting card. Yeah,
2: exactly. wasn't comparing different events, but... I would be on stage presenting each of the pieces by the State Orchestral Company in front of 2,500 people, probably starting when I was about 14. Wow. We got given a bit of a budget to buy a fancy dress. And oh. We, yeah, we were in black tie. It was very fancy. It's very sophisticated. It was very sophisticated and we, <laughs> <laughs> I think we were, a little, we were a little sort of jump in the deep end hosting something of that scale. But, yeah, that was my first time on that stage looking out at the beautiful space. Ra, that was Lily's first story
0: about being in the concert hall. Yes. Can you tell me about yours?
1: Well, I've never been in the concert hall. I have never even stepped into the concert hall. So this is very exciting for me to be able to smell it and feel the temperature and be able to walk around and exist in that realm. I have, however, performed at the Drama Theatre in the Sydney Theatre Company's production of Midsummer Night's Dream, which Kip Williams, the now artistic director, was... Amazing enough to grant me that opportunity. I played the very, very small role of Snug the Joiner and a fairy. Now, Snug the Joiner is one of the mechanicals in Midsummer Night's Dream, one of the play actors. And, yeah, it was a really fun time. It was a great way for me to learn about how the theatre works. Yeah, that was my first time.
0: Can you tell me about the first time you discovered your passion for acting as a child?
1: Yes. When I was younger, I was extremely isolated and bullied. And I found the mirror as a form of escapism. I would sit in front of the mirror for hours because I was quite isolated from family and friends. And I would use the mirror. I would do different accents and voices and faces and I would exist within the realms of the many different dimensions that I could have possibly been born in so that I could bear the weight of existence. Yeah, wow. I found an enjoyment in that escapism you know, I, I didn't feel as though I was shackled to my my physical being. I was able to explore spiritually what it was to be other people and other people's adversities and vicissitudes that they faced. And I found that uh, an adventure. So, uh, yeah, once I discovered that form of, of artistry, I very much plunged into the depths of what that was.
0: Yeah, a number of your roles, Ra, like the principal and here out west, are set in western Sydney, and you grew up in Parramatta. Mm. How did you bring your connection to western Sydney to these roles?
1: I came here when I was three and a half years of age as a refugee from Kurdistan escaping Saddam Hussein's genocide, and grew up pretty much in the Parramatta region. And um, I grew up in a particular environment. Of multiculturalism and and, and an amalgam of different ideas and thoughts, but kind of in a in a peaceful, tranquil existence. I feel as though I mean I'm a pretty out there kind of person, I feel as though the soul and the physical vessel are two separate things and this physical vessel, which to the outer world is a Middle Eastern, young Middle Eastern guy who looks a particular way, is the vehicle that I've been given to drive. And within that vessel I've experienced particular things in a particular way. And the roles that I get are very much in line with that. And when I get the principal or here out west or any of the other multiple roles that I've played in the same world of a young Middle Eastern character who's usually angry, misunderstood, you know, confused, which you know is, is quite. I, I like I like playing those those kind of feelings, whatever the culture may be. I was able to bring that level of history and uh, experience to those roles, and an attempt to find very subtle, you know, differences between those roles so that whenever I played those roles, they wouldn't always come out the same. So you wouldn't watch any role that I'd play twice and go, wow, he's literally playing the same role. No. Each of these people, as as similar as they may seem to the to the outside eye, are very nuanced and complex and different individuals, and I was keen to be able to shape that sort of difference.
0: And how important to you are those characters and those portrayals?
1: Very important because there are, there are people of my descent out there that feel absolutely alone and scared and worried and isolated. The same things I felt when I was young, and I want to be able to show them there's a different way of exploring. There's a, there are multiple ways of expression to be able to, to showcase your inner vulnerabilities without being afraid of the judgement that comes along with it.
0: Lily, you got your big break in New York City. How did you end up living over there and you know, living every actor's dream?
2: Oh, gosh. So it I was actually, I did an undergrad degree in film, but I just couldn't quite shake this, this desire to be a performer that I'd had from when I was about three years old. I started out as a dancer and then I moved to poetry recitation and verse speaking training when I was five. And I auditioned uh, one last time for NIDA, was not successful and on a bit of a whim, booked an airfare, really spur of the moment. And then found myself in New York auditioning for Juilliard and NYU. I got through the callbacks, but I didn't get into Juilliard, which in the end I think was the right thing because um, different programs have a different sort of energy to them and I think I suited NYU. I ended up being taken by the hand by the person who I was auditioning for for the undergrad program and she said, I think you need to go to the grad program, which I didn't even know existed. And I got a callback and I... Got offered a place, um, one of 16 people out of about a thousand auditioning. Wow. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a bit of a surreal moment. And that was how I ended up on the other side of the world, <laughs> not knowing anyone.
0: After you left New York, you moved away from acting and into directing. Mm. And you brought some very Australian stories like Bad
2: Machine to life. Mm. What was that change like? So before I moved into directing, I was producing a bit of a, it was a journey, I guess, from I was heading up the performance program at Campbelltown Arts Centre for a few years. That was a really great experience in and of itself, because it was, it's a great organisation. It only commissions new work. It doesn't do any buy-ins. So it was learning about sort of different parts of the performance world than I had ever been exposed to before, such as contemporary performance, contemporary dance, performance art even. So that sort of led to, as a producer, I commissioned a new play, Bad Machine, which was me transitioning across to directing. It's a new Australian play by an incredible young Australian playwright named Brooke Robinson, who's from Campbelltown. Um, She's based out of London primarily, and it's exploring the topic of the robodeck crisis. She and I came together. She's worked mostly in London. I've worked mostly in New York, and we had this sort of impassioned discussion about, you know, if we were in London, if we were in (laughs) New York, there's no way we'd be able to make the first artwork about this topic because there'd be seven existing plays. And we found it sort of bewildering that there was no art form actually that had been exploring it as yet. So we kind of jumped in and and made a work that was looking at the human impact of these large-scale, high-level government decisions and the very real effects that they have on people just like you or me. One of the things that was instilled in us at NYU was that you're not just an artist, you're an artist citizen and yeah I'm really proud to have been a part of the creation of New Australian Theatre but also making a work that gives a voice to people who otherwise maybe don't get much of a platform.
0: Nice, well I'll definitely be keeping an eye on Bad Machine for sure. Rahel, can you tell me a bit about the behind the scenes of Amadeus? I'm keen to hear about how it felt when you got the part.
1: My agents told me that that this particular production of Red Line and Opera House had been searching for four months to find the actor or performer to be able to bring to life Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And I was quite interested. I, I, I mean, I'd I'd never thought that I would be the candidate to play the role of Mozart. I never even thought it was a possibility. I don't know why, because upon reading it, I I thought, wow, myself and this character are quite similar, not in the levels of genius. I'd like to stay humble in that regard, but in the levels of eccentricity and passion, you know, Um, I feel that connection to to Mozart. And when I got the audition, um, my agent was like, please, you know, take this seriously, learn your lines. I said, have I ever not, you know, and (laughs) so once I got the audition, I read the two scenes that I was meant to do. One of them was a raunchy escapade into the sexual desire. Mm-hmm. And one was um, a passionate connection to a godlike genius existence. And I thought, wow, two extremely different scenes that would be great in any school or role. And uh, I learned those two scenes. I just understood the character. I understood the musicality within it. I understood the pain. I understood. It on a particular level that I just was dancing at the joy because my favorite part of performance is to break down and analyze the dialogue and the scenes and the thoughts, the thoughts in between the birth of thoughts, the revelations, the inner circle, outer circle and greater circle, you know, I just, it was exciting. And when I learned it, I went in there and I absolutely was like a child in a playground.
0: Wow, you're really painting a picture of, of that moment. I wish yeah. I was in the room. It, it sounds so exciting. Joyous. Yeah, it's always yeah. fun. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned a little bit about the eccentricity that you saw yes. in the character and yourself. Mm. Were there other similarities between?
1: Yes, you uh, they and call Mozart? him the tiny creature, and I myself have not of a tall stature or build. Those physical details uh, have I've also found a similarity.
0: Michael Sheen is in this version. <laughs> of Amadeus and mm. has previously played Mozart.
1: I love this man.
0: Did this make you nervous to join him on stage? Of course. Yeah.
1: We're talking about one of the greatest theatre actors alive. You know, I feel like just a general tennis player and then you're throwing me on the court with a, you know, a Novak Federer. Djokovic yeah. or a Federer <laughs> or even a Serena Williams or mm-hmm. what have you. And all of a sudden um, it kicks in. Hold on a second. I've gone from training practice person to someone on the court with the highest level and so of course there's a level of nerve but a level of excitement because i look at michael sheen and i see myself in so many qualities in him not only physically but passion. You know. You watch him in anything. You Google him in anything. You YouTube Michael Sheen on anything. He is so passionately invested in whatever it may be, as silly or as grand as it may be. So absolutely, it is so exciting to be able to work with a, a master of the craft, Michael Sheen.
0: I love that analogy too of the tennis court. Yeah. And the playing. I mean, that's what acting absolutely. is, Absolutely. Right? Lily, this show is a return to the stage for you. What have the last few years been
2: like and how does it feel to be back? I've been I've been working, I guess, yeah, in different creative capacities. Bit of this, bit of that, bit of circus artistry as well. And uh, I'm actually so grateful for the opportunity to have explored different parts of my creative practice. To me, it feels like um, expansion of awareness, you know. Mm-hmm. As you continue to grow awareness as a human being, you're naturally going to have awareness, grow. It's like parts of the room that were in the dark before have a light shone on them and you start to see that, oh, there's something over there that I wasn't aware of before. How does it feel to be back and going into the <laughs> show? <laughs> Feels pretty great. Yeah, <laughs> Feels pretty, pretty damn exciting. Yeah, it' a little daunting, I'm not going to lie. It's on a very large scale and working with one of the, the <laughs> finest living theatre actors. Mm. Yeah, it's a rare confluence of factors that comes together to feel um, almost fated and it's definitely pinch-me territory. Lily, your dad was actually born in the
0: same town as Mozart. Is yeah, that right? Yeah. What yeah. happened when he found out
2: that you got the role? Well, <laughs> he um, he was over the moon and the first one of the first things he said to me was, well, you'd better go to Salzburg for research. And my dad has always said that he would never go back to Salzburg. He's He was born there in a refugee camp and spent the first couple of years of his life in that refugee camp. So he's, you know, there's a lot of stuff attached to it for him. We're from Hungary originally. And, um, and I said to him, yeah, I'll go if you go, Dad. And he, to my surprise, said, OK. And so we actually just visited as a family. My family went back to Salzburg. We went for the first time, but he went back for the first time since he was a little boy, which was a really beautiful, rare, emotional journey. I bet. I mean, it was just surreal, to be honest. It was like visiting the the birthplace of Mozart, visiting the place where Mozart then lived when he was older and they moved to a different home and... That was a place where my character, you know, went and visited Mozart's father with with him and you know, my character died in Salzburg. So I went to the house where she died, and meanwhile just a little bit over there was where my father was born. So it was yeah, it was quite a quite a strange coming together of events and and kind of contributed to the feeling, I guess, of it being a little fated, the whole thing.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's quite a powerful catalyst for your dad to go back, like you getting this role?
2: Yeah, it was It was actually, yeah, it felt like intergenerational healing. You know, my grandparents, my Nodge Mama and Nodge Papa died when I was very young because they, um, they had cancers from the DDT spray, which people were sprayed with when they entered Australia as refugees. And so my father was so young that he didn't get sprayed, but his parents did. And they died very close to each other, far too young. And so that's a huge reason why he was never going to go back. So to be a part of, you know, researching for the play but also being a part of my own, tracing my own family lineage and, yeah, holding space for my father and, and being by his side for that was, you know, I'm going get, to get a little bit emotional talking about it, to be honest, because it was a very rare, rare experience that I don't think many people have the opportunity to have and has come about really because of this play. It's wild. It's so <laughs> it's all wild worked out like that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ra, what do you think Armadeus is about?
1: I think Armadeus is about the unsheathing of the shiny, alluring sword of one's propensity for malevolence and the revelation of one's most darkest feelings and de- desires. There's the yin and the yang, light and shade, the and umbra or shadow. It's essentially a dance with the devil, the inner psychological odyssey of Salieri's retelling of a particularly envious period of his life.
2: And Lily? <laughs> I think it's about the interplay between mediocrity and profundity, what it is to be someone who's born with the capacity to recognise profundity but not with the ability to produce it and I think that that must be a very tortured state of affairs. Mm. Yeah, the exploration of of a, a real person who existed in history, who created some of the most, I mean, transcendent, transcendent art across any art form that has ever been made, he touched god and i also think being that i am playing constanza she has been given a pretty rough rap even to this day by biographers as being money hungry greedy not worthy of him and um i'm quite proud of the character <laughs> that i'm playing every actor kind of you know stands up for their character but if it weren't for the fact that she published his works and that she spent the time to sign off on every single page of his works after he died far too young to make sure that no one else could be taking, you could take credit for his work or that no one else could say that was Mozart when it actually wasn't, then we wouldn't have the catalogue of his works that we have. Ra,
0: the plot of Almadeus famously applies a lot of creative licence to the story of Mozart. What kind of creative license do you want to bring to your interpretation?
1: What I want to bring, I mean, I find that oftentimes Mozart is played with a particular childlike quality. I want to bring something a little more layered. I want to bring my version, you know, my fingerprint, as it were, to this role. And I have an odd ability to mimic and sing opera and And belt out a few tunes, and due to the simple reasoning of of mimicry, as a child, I used to love mimicking people and their voices, and their not just the voices, but the intent in the voice and the musicality in the voice and everything like that. So when I look at the script, that's what I want to bring: vocal dexterity, uh, more of a complexity.
0: It's quite amazing to um, hear about you singing opera in it as well. Had you sung <laughs>
1: opera before? No. Well, I would never sung opera professionally or anything. But funnily enough, I was involved in Cosi, which we put on here at the Opera House. And Cosi was short. It's an Australian play written by Louis Naura, one of our great playwrights. And it's about a, an asylum that is, um, has the um, passion and willingness to put on Cosi Fantute, uh, which is one of Mozart's famous comedic operas. And within that opera, there are scenes where the characters have to sing opera. And within those scenes, once we were taught the operatic bits, I found this natural inclination to be able to express myself within the operatic scheme. And uh, and I found that I, with my vibrato and with my dexterity, I was able to mimic quite well. Um, opera, So I'm going to try my best to incorporate that into the role, which as of yet, I have not seen done. So hopefully yeah. it works out well. <laughs> yeah, he's hoping. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in
0: 2022, you won the prestigious Heath Ledger Scholarship. Yes. Can you talk to me about the acceptance speech that you made?
1: It, we were told, you know, obviously prepare a speech, yeah. you know, um, and uh, I'd been nominated for a few awards prior to that, but I'd never won and I never thought I would. It was more of an exercise for me. I wrote from my heart, you know, that speech, never knowing whether I'd, I'd, I'd recite it. I wrote a wonderful poem when I was nominated for an actor award, which I never got to recite. And I remember ripping it up in my jacket pocket when I didn't win the award. Part of me was hurt that I didn't get to read it, but part of me thought everything, as Lily was saying earlier, was fated and that it was not time yet Mm -hmm. to recite this.
0: Mm. And in the speech, you talk about artists who are perhaps less fortunate and who maybe don't get to study, as Lily was talking about earlier, in formal institutions. Yes, Can you elaborate a little bit more for people who might not have heard the speech?
1: Absolutely. Um, In the speech, I talk about less fortunate artists. And what I mean by that is whether it be financial, whether it be knowledge, whether it be whatever the circumstances may be, there are artists out there or at least people that haven't yet uncovered the, uh, the fact that they could be artists, their potential for artistry, such as myself, I knew I ha- wanted to do something. I didn't know what NIDA was. I didn't know what WAPA was. I didn't know what anything was. And I know that there are people out there that are less fortunate. Hopefully, one person will see that speech or see that moment and see themselves in me mm. and know that it's possible. If it's possible for me, it's possible for them.
0: Do you think that things are getting better and that barriers are being broken down at all?
1: Absolutely. Diversity is number one. I mentioned that in my speech also. It is the mirror to the world. In saying that, as much as diversity is important, what's most important to me is ability and merit and hard work. I don't want to see people in this industry that it's not doing them a service to bring forth mediocrity, which is that funny that Amadeus is about that isn't it um that it's about (laughs) mediocrity versus genius you know absolutely i love hard work i love the undying necessity to be the top level of anything this is a wonderful casting director recently i had a coffee with and she told me that she'd never known the level of technique i encapsulated until she saw me in a particular play after 10 years of auditioning for her it's because I didn't get a piece of material that, was, that gave me the opportunity to showcase what I could do. Yeah. And then she came and saw me in a play and then goes, holy moly, this guy has a technique that I've never been able to see at work. And that is just an example of what I'm saying is mm. dig deep, really try and find the great ones. Not that I'm saying I am one, I'm saying that that is the duty of the industry.
0: What's one thing that you think would enhance Australia's theatre scene?
1: I think everything starts in writing. You know, whenever I start anything as an actor, as a performer, I look at the writing. I think the most important thing is giving playwrights adequate time to be able to mold their thoughts, the complexities of the writing, the giving each character their own specific detail and a color and quality and musicality. And I think when you allow a playwright the time to be able to carve that out concretely, you get the most potent mixture. Of 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 what what it is to watch a play to mirror the inner vulnerabilities of what it is to be human to an audience so that they connect on an unconscious subconscious and conscious level and don't even know why they're so moved but they are so I think absolutely um, taking time you know to carve out the best piece of art as possible as as it is the case with everything else in life with you rush something Rome wasn't built in a day you know I know that's a it's a cliche but it definitely applies to this circumstance.
0: And Lily, with your experience in theatre both here and overseas, mm. the same question for you, what do you think could really enhance Australia's theatre scene?
2: I have a similar sentiment to what Ra has just said insofar as you have to sort of, I guess, give people the opportunity to showcase their chops and sometimes maybe think outside the box with who you would see for something. So like bringing people in for things that maybe goes against the grain, but sort of expanding the parameters of, of who could be allowed to play different characters, different sort of archetypes. And also, yeah, opening up positions at the table for new people to to break in, not just having a sort of you-can't-sit-with-us kind of philosophy.
0: Totally, less gatekeeping.
2: Yeah, I guess I I also agree with the idea of a meritocracy, I, and I, I think that... You know, a meritocracy is inclusive of diversity. You know, you really just want to be encouraging the creation of art that is reflecting our society back to us in an authentic way and ensuring that people are being given opportunities to cut their teeth and build their careers and develop their talent over time and not just be replicating the same sort of thing over and over again.
0: Well, speaking of making space for new people and new artists... Who are some people who both of you think are up next that we should be keeping an eye on? Ra, do you want to go first?
1: Recently I watched Never Closer at the 25A Belvoir, written by an amazing playwright, Grace Chappell. I promise you, I watched this play and I thought it was written in the 50s or 60s. Or, or. I was like, oh, wow, this is one of those classically amazing Northern Irish plays. And then I left the theater and I said, So, what, when was this written? The 50s, the 60s? I said, No, this is a recent work by an amazing playwright called Grace Chapel." And I was like, wow, this is, it was so Chekhovian, it was so deep, it was so layered, it had a good one's direction, fantastic. and it, it, it gave me hope and, and excitement that there are writers out there, there are playwrights out there that follow the formula that works and that is to mirror the inner vulnerabilities of what it is to be human to an audience so that they connect on an unconscious, subconscious and conscious level and don't even know why they're so moved, but they are.
2: And Lily? I worked with an actor on Bad Machine named Abby Lee Lewis. She just toured to the UK with Belvoir. She was phenomenal in Bad Machine, but she's also just directed, had her directing premiere. And I'm I'm excited to see where her career goes as a performer, as an actor, and as an arts leader, because I can see her as being a, an incredible artistic director one day. And she's a powerful, powerful First Nations woman with unlimited talent. So that's one. Hannah Bronte, and her partner Jeswar, Jesswar J E S S W A R for people wanting to look it up Hannah Brontë is a visual artist I worked with her when I was working at Campbelltown Art Centre she works with sort of projections and video art a lot plus she DJs her partner is a hip hop artist and they are incredibly talented you know, those two kind of mishmash stuff together. Hannah sometimes DJs and uses her projection art in conjunction and I would love to see Hannah's works on the sales one day. Victoria Pham, she's uh, she actually performed here recently with um James Newen. They did a, a work at the Opera House and it's about their exploration of the Don Son drum. They're both Vietnamese Australian, so they kind of um these drums that have been taken out of Vietnamese culture and put basically into museum archives in Western countries. They've taken it upon themselves to start buying these drums, which is so incredible. So they've kind of got this like, you know, I think they've got a couple now, a couple of 2,000-year-old drums. It's a repatriation project and she's just a force of nature. I mean, talk about the future of opera at the Opera House. She's went to the con, she's a composer, a musician. She's doing her PhD in archaeology at Cambridge at the moment. She is one of the kindest humans you will ever meet and just a force of nature. I don't know how she fits it all in. Doing the most. And the next thing, she's (laughs) we we met for coffee recently and she said, I think I'm going to do an opera next. And I was like, of course you are, Victoria. (laughs) Of course you are. So anyone at the Opera House wanting to program, watch those spaces.
0: That was Rahel Rahman and Lily Bolintinch, performers in the new production of Armadeus opening at the end of this year. In the next episode, we'll be hearing from singer-songwriter Nairi.
2: I just feel proud my mum flew in from PNG a few days ago to come see it and I said, Mum, how are you feeling about all this stuff? And she was just dropping me at the opera house. <laughs> she just burst out crying and oh. she's like, I've always wanted to see a symphony orchestra and to be able to see it with my daughter, is and she just couldn't get the words out. She was just a mess.
0: I'm Courtney Ammenhauser, and this has been Up Next, a podcast from the Sydney Opera House. From AudioCraft, the show is produced by Bernadette Fung Nam mixed by Glenn Morrow. Executive producer is Selena Shannon. From Sydney Opera House, head of digital programming is Stuart Buchanan, and digital programming coordinator is Georgia D'Souza. The Up Next theme music is by Milan Ring. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.